we're pretty responsible about making sure that we're working with the right businesses, that it's the right time for them to be offsetting to decarbonise first, because that's really important. We don't have enough offsets in the world to just offset our, our way out of this problem. We're also working on the other end of, you know, turning the tap off on the bath as well as letting the plug out. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Hey folks, greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain, and great to be sitting down today with Dave Rouse, who is the Chief Executive at Carbon Clip. Welcome along, Dave. Thanks, Paul. Nice to be here. Yeah, look, it's great great to catch up again. We, we were uh, at your offices uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, which interestingly was the old spot where uh, Podcast New Zealand Studios used to be, where we used to record, and uh, and the Gorilla offices. But here we are at our, our new uh, uh, studios and uh, NHQ, and really looking forward to diving in, uh, hearing a little bit about you know your background in the in the world of startups and and tech, and you know some of some of those learnings, as well as um, Carbon Click, which is the the business you're now uh, chief executive of, and uh, it sounds like there's been some really exciting stuff going on on that front. Um, before we start, though, big thank you to our show partners, to uh, Vodafone, Two Degrees, uh, Spark, HP, and Gorilla Technology. All right, so I'm not quite sure where to where to start, um, Dave. I, I, I guess I always like to sort of you know go back to background a little bit. You grew up here in Auckland. Yeah, I grew up out in the bush, out in the Waitakere's, um, and then moved to the Big Smoke, which was Titirangi, when I was about 12 years old. Yep, yep, <laughs> cool. And, um, you know, in those sort of younger years, do you have much of an interest in sort of tech, business and, and, and so on? Not not really tech at all. Um, my mum was a naturopath, dad was a merchant banker, so I was very much interested in um, stocks and, and learning about how businesses worked. And um, so, I, you know, some of my birthdays, I got shares for my birthday and things like that. And, and uh, so all my school years, I became quite geeky at, at learning a, about maybe how to predict what a share price is likely to do based on announcements and things like that. But um, that was all learnings from my father. Yeah. And then on my mum's side, it was all about, you know, how do we uh, look after ourselves, our health, our environment around us. So they're kind of two very competing uh, views on the world. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. Uh, and so, we, you know, when you finished up school and, and decided to go off, uh, you went to Auckland University – um, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. You know how you how you decided what to do and, and what that journey kind of looked like. Look, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, you know, two years before uni, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, and then uh, you know, just on a whim, I kind of the the year before, I sort of decided, no, I'll go into medicine. Um, and then you know, a year into that, I swapped over into engineering and and commercial piloting, and um, and a little bit of quality assurance that went with that as well. Right. So um, how did you get from there to working with or landing in, in a place where, you know, you've very much been in the world of, you know, of entrepreneurship over, over recent years? So what did that journey look like? Yeah. So I guess the journey looked like I, when I went into the big wide world thinking, right, I watched uh, Catch Me If You Can and I thought that was an awesome lifestyle as the pilots, you know, it was all glorified. <laughs> I thought this is cool, you know. <laughs> And um, and I loved machinery, um, so I decided, right, this is me. Once I've got my licence, I'll just go and get a job and fly planes. And I couldn't get a job. 
because you know there's so much competition so you know I had to fly in, in funny places and dodgy planes and that sort of thing to try and build my hours up but um but during that course I thought you know there's got to be a better way maybe if I get into a business related to that I'll be able to um, shortcut that so I'm not going to spend you know I was seeing stories of 10 years of working for poor quality airlines and seeing life flash before my eyes too many times to get into the nice planes so I got into a business with quality assurance and uh, and that was my first experience at business and I really loved it um, and you know we ran a contract for an airline and part of that gig was to be able to get uh, time as a first officer and flying bigger planes and that was you know a, kind of an entrepreneurial way of getting bypassing the system yes, and getting yes. straight to the point of where I wanted to be in a, you know, a tenth of the time. And, and I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed the hustle. I enjoyed, from the um, auditing perspective, I got to learn a lot about the internals of how an operation worked of that size. Yeah, and that great. was actually more fascinating for me than the flying. So I started doing a bit more of that auditing on the side in different businesses and, and just learning what works and what doesn't in a company at an operational level. And then the, the airline that I was, you know, doing this work for, they went bust. And so I was left at a point of deciding what I'm going to do next. And, of course, you know, one of my hobbies that I loved as well at the time was racing. So I thought, right, so if I get an automotive workshop and get a tax-deductible pit crew that can be fixing my car all the time, I'll be able to get into racing. And, you know, that's not quite how the real world works. But when you're young 20s, you know, dreams are, dreams are free. So... Again, I got into that. I saw opportunity for disruption and doing things quite differently, um, niche specialising, and we did really well, but I didn't get into racing at all because I was so busy and consumed with trying to run a business. Thing. So I got into a number of different businesses, but mm. basically buying into them, building them up, and then exiting them um, once they're running right. And I started getting more and more um, systemised as to how I was doing this and making more and more money at each at each time and taking bigger gambles, really. Yeah, um, and so at each time. And what what was the role of technology in these things? Because you know you yeah. got quite involved in technology along along the way. How did you, you know, how were you using technology in these these businesses? Yeah, so so the big thing that I was noticing through these audits that I was doing is that businesses were relying too much on humans, and humans make mistakes. And there's a big opportunity to cut humans out of a lot of that process or use technology to support the humans to do those processes better. I wasn't trying to replace everybody's jobs. I was trying to grow the business um, in a more scalable way. Mm. Um, so, you know, even in the workshop days, I actually worked with, there was a Sam Orion Systems back then was the name of it, but it was an automotive workshop uh, program and that needed a lot of refinement, UX refinement. And so we actually employed one of the developers working on the system to come and work in our workshop every Saturday, building that system and showing him how we could make things much better in the real world and how we could make the flow work better with how mechanics actually do their job and customers actually interact with the platform. And, and you know, back then you could have camera recognition on number plates so that you could people at the front desk could greet people on their first names and say you're booked in for this, here's your loan card, good to go, and it's, you know, all the paperwork's automated. Yeah. So yeah. back then I really got a kick out of uh, all of that and it, and it just made such a great customer experience um, because everybody felt like your friend when they came in and you just knew what was going on. 
And so all, all businesses from that point, I'd kind of seen or had a look at what was possible um, using technology to, to automate all of the processes that we could um, and, and really at the very least provide a safety net on every process that we could. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's pretty important, isn't it? Because when you're you know you were dealing with vehicles, you don't if you miss out an important step, then you know that that could that could kill someone, right? And it was sort of worst worst case scenario, or you know, and every single yeah every single organisation has has things that are really really important to do. So yeah, if you can use the technology to help you know lift up your consistency. Uh, that's helpful as a you know th- those other elements in terms of your uh, customer experience and and uh, you know bringing up productivity as well. Yeah, absolutely, and also from the diagnostics perspective, you know sometimes uh, you go down a rabbit hole of assuming something's going to be wrong, so you follow a process expecting an outcome, and it's not actually what's wrong. You know, and that was a big problem in the in the automotive industry as comebacks. So. Mm-hmm. People would say, hey, I've got a funny noise. And somebody would say, oh, that's your flux capacitor. No problem. I'll put another <laughs> one in. <laughs> and then they come back a week later, it's still making the funny noise. And you're like, oh, no, what do we do here? So that's where we would go through, you know, this is kind of my quality assurance hat coming on. Have mm. we actually checked everything properly? Have we confirmed the diagnosis or made an assumption? And sometimes you have to, you can't replicate a problem in the workshop. So you've got to take some guesses sometimes. And that can mm. be a nightmare mm. as well. But mm. Mm. More often than not, there's a system and a process and a logical flow that can cut out a lot of that heartache that customers were dealing with, with having to come back and get something fixed again. And regardless on who who has to pay the bill for it, somebody has to pay for that inefficiency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that the, the quality assurance sort of side is uh, is probably a challenge that, that goes sort of, you know, far and wide across lots of different sectors, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's what I found is coming into just about any business, you know, if I could set up the systems, processes and quality assurance and I could get the all of the HR taken care of, so all the contracts are designed and the bonus systems are designed around the KPIs that meet the company goals and those company goals are really well communicated top to bottom from whoever's sweeping the floor to whoever's cutting the deal that was really important and it was missing out of most businesses that I went into. It's just people had evolved into doing things and they forgot why they were doing things. Mm, mm. Oh, that's <laughs> fascinating. So what was next after um, selling out? That was uh, Auto Clinic Group, was it? Yeah, that was going back a long time. Yeah, but, yeah. but yeah, so a number of number of other businesses since then from seafood exports, half-shell mussels into Korea, through to skin cancer clinic, through to, you know, all sorts of weird and wonderful things along the way. Did those same sort of threads continue in those businesses or were there, were there other big things that also sort of came in along, along the way? Increasingly software and technology mm. along the mm. way and yep. finding, you know, even in the, in the skin clinic, we found that um, the software available, none of it really was ideal. So, you know, we, we found a, a Kiwi software provider um, uh, that we could work with that, that had maybe 30% of the market in New Zealand, 30% of the GP market. Um, we could work with them to refine their product. So we were building integrations into online booking systems and things that they just they didn't have before. 
And we would, you know, cut deals with them. We'll 50% fund this because we're going to see the return on investment even though all of their customers are. Um, so that's the kind of attitude I've taken with, with every business is let's yeah, – you've got to have things automated properly and robust. Yeah, yeah, so, so good. And so often, by the sounds of it, the, the uh, businesses that you, were, that you were hitting, you were finding that there were just, you know, really good, really big gaps in terms of, you know, how well they were leveraging technology. Yeah, yeah, great, great people in the business, often just not um, given the right incentives, controls and support to be able to, um, to, be able to prosper. And, and really it's that the people in the business that make all the difference. But if you can put them in an environment where they've got the systems that really support them, then, you know, that's half the battle. Mm. I've, yeah, I've noticed um, yeah, across a range of organisations, but you know, especially in New Zealand where we have so many sort of smaller to medium organisations where yeah, skill sets are quite, and people are quite stretched, uh, that often the technology you know, sort of sits as a, sort of the last thing that, that gets thought about in terms of taking um, a business forward. Has is, is that been your experience too? Yeah, absolutely. And and the bigger and the more mature the business, usually the worse that it is. So there was an engineering company that um, that I bought into, um, and twenty five year old solid engineering company. They were doing about forty percent of New Zealand's uh, chlorinate, gas chlorination um, systems and and servicing for all of the basically the councils around New Zealand, mm. the tap water that you drink, and. The, you know, they had an old system that was built on top of patch and patch and patch and it was so messy in the background that we just couldn't get accurate reporting and data out of it and measurement. Um, you know, you'd run different P&Ls and it depends on which way the wind was blowing as to what, <laughs> <laughs> what, the, what the story was that it came out of there. And, and so that was something that, you know, we spent a lot of time and money investing in um, and we had to patch it up properly first yep. just to get it working to yeah. be able to remodel it outside of that system. Um, and that was, that was, you know, some of the headaches that you encounter when you, when you take on a legacy kind of business. But, you know, unlocking that as well as some other systems and processes, we kind of grew to 85% of the country's chlorination, gas chlorination, within just under two years. So wow. it's... It's like you can really take the handbrake off a business if you can get in there and sort some of the stuff out that's usually in the too hard basket. Mm, mm. You talked about your interest uh, in environmental things. How did you get from from there to actually where you've been? You know, you've been working. Uh, you've got a, a non-profit that that you're involved in, a number of other businesses, but also you're now chief executive at, at Carbon Click. So. <laughs> how did you how did you land where you are now? Yeah, so I guess I, I reached a point in my life I was about to have my son, um, which was a bit of a wake up call for me. Um, and I had a good exit and decided, right, this is probably time to rethink what I want to do for the rest of my life. And can I give back something? Because I felt like I'd done quite well and there'd probably been a bit of luck involved along the way. So I'd thought, you know, if I put some time and money into a charity, 
that would be great. I couldn't find one that was running efficiently enough that it didn't piss me off. <laughs> so, so, and what I didn't like was, you know, donating to a cause where most of it gets absorbed in administration. That just, you know, really racked me up. So as did, you know, I really cared for the environment. I spent a lot of time on the water fishing and, and diving and, and particularly outside of New Zealand, the amount of plastics in the water was just a, a bit of a shocker. But also in New Zealand, it was getting worse and worse. So that's that was kind of the birth of sea cleaners. I joined up with some others. So Bob Harvey was, you know, our, the guy that actually pulled us all together. And so we set that up and grew that over a few years to 10 boats operating full time, um, taking corporates and school kids out to see the impact, collect the plastics and bring it back. And, you know, by the time I exited uh, Sea Cleaners, we'd, we'd collectively pulled out 200 shipping containers full of rubbish from the, from the seas around or from the oceans around New Zealand. Wow, wow. Which is a, which is a lot. <laughs> and was there a, a technological aspect to doing that work as well? Has as there no. been able to be a lot of innovation? Because I've seen some little... You know, bits and pieces that seem to be coming coming through, but yeah, uh, that's and, all very and sustainable new. coastlines did a really good data collection project mm. um, where they used technology to start getting some of the science behind how how bad is the problem, where is it worse, and all of that, and that's mm. really cool. But we didn't quite get to that stage, although you know, I, I support all the groups that are doing this kind of thing. It wasn't you know, we're all in this together, mm. but mm. that um, that charitable side of things really uh, gave me a lot of sense of purpose in life, and I, I really enjoyed that. Um, I started investing, uh, deciding to angel invest in particularly clean tech. So who can I throw money at that will help solve the problem that I might also get a financial return out of, you know, cutting plastic out of consumer goods. Um, companies like Ethique that, you know, they take shampoo in a plastic bottle that weighs lots and creates lots of emissions and, and has lots of waste and they put it into a little little bar, like a shampoo bar, a conditioner bar and so on wrapped in cardboard so it's super easy no plastic no you know no fish for harmed in the making of this commercial kind of thing so that's that's what I started investing in is is companies that would do great things and and then I started getting interested in climate science and along that journey I thought plastic was the biggest problem single-use plastic was the biggest problem humanity faced um, until I realised what was happening with the climate. And it took a lot of reading and a lot of research before I actually believed it because there were so many conflicting arguments, all from qualified scientists. You know, some of them might have been funded by the oil companies and some of them, you know, not funded at all. But I didn't know who to listen to. I didn't know if the oil companies were being honest or dishonest or what the story was. So I took it on my own back to research that, and it took me about a year Wow! Well, how how do you how do you research and get your get your head around climate change? Well, I thought, what's the source document that everybody's arguing about when it comes to political campaigns and who's going to sign on to the Paris Agreement and things like that? And it all came down to this um, agreement. Uh, sorry, a fifteen hundred page document, roughly, by somebody a, a group called the IPCC, which is the Inter Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change. This is thousands of scientists collectively putting data into this system and and working out what's happening and trying to understand climate change really and what are the drivers for it. And there were bits that didn't make sense and bits that they didn't understand, but bits that were really obvious as well. So I had to filter all the information into, okay, what is definite? 
that we do know, um, or at least really high probability, um, can, can see the writing on the wall. Yep. And from, from that, this was kind of going back five years, from that I deduced that we've got two options, right? We can not act and hope that they're wrong, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> or we can act and hope that they're wrong. Yeah, but yeah. if they're right and we haven't acted, yeah. then we've really said no to a, possibly the last opportunity that we have to fix this because mm. it's a bit of a domino effect, right? And when you think of the really simple science behind climate change, you know, the sun is what drives all the heat and all the energy that comes onto the earth. And if we have lots of white surface like the snow, uh, polar ice caps, it reflects a lot of heat out, cloud reflects a lot of heat out and but the cloud also insulates as well so it's a bit of a 50 50 kind of uh story there but if those polar ice caps melt and the sun is heating dark terrain then it's almost too difficult to get rid of that heat again um so so you enter this cycle where that's what happens when sea levels rise and all that sort of thing. So we're melting basically all these ice sheets and things and mm -hmm. as those who have studied any science might know, you know, if you melt ice, it doesn't create any sea level change at all if the ice is floating on the water. It's the same mass displacement. Um, however, <laughs> if you melt ice that's on land, it does. And the ice melts at the sea level first and rises up to this problem. And so we're seeing this yep. now. We're seeing yeah, minute yeah. amounts of sea level rise at the moment. It's mm, barely mm. noticeable. Yep. You are seeing climate change, though. But soon you'll see that sea level rise ramp up as well. And at that point, it's too late to do anything about it other than a bunch of scientists saying, we told you so. So, yeah, yeah. so that's what spurred me into thinking, well, I need to invest in climate tech because... I've got to do something about this and I'm in a position to do something about it. I've got time on my hands, a little bit of spare cash. You know, let's let's see who's trying to fix this and how yep. Yep. and what I can do better to not cause part of that problem. And two of my co-founders from Carbon Click were pitching at a accelerator event. They're just, ex, uh, you know, a centrality-run accelerator. And I watched the pitch and I thought, this is this is bloody good. This is some guys that have you know, got some experience with an international airline on their carbon offsetting platform, uh, learning about why customers do and don't click that little green button to offset their flight. And a lot of it was around trust and transparency and thinking that the airline might be just trying to make more money out of them. That wasn't the case, but it's that perception is everything, right? And if they don't understand where that money is going and can't see that transparently that it's, that it's happened, that distrust prevents them from actually parting with their hard-earned couple of dollars um, to make that flight carbon neutral. So this was the birth of Carbon Click was to address all of that using technology to make it simple, meaningful and transparent. And um, I was just going to invest and, and back them, but we yep. couldn't find a good uh, CEO uh, to be able to, to run that course. So I said, I'll, I don't mind stepping in for a short period of time if if that's what it takes to get this up and going. Um, and they, they sort of welcomed me on board as a co-founder. And um, and this was 2019? 
yeah, 2019, and then and then of course you know we started building out this platform, got some other investors on board as well, um, and and had basically pre-sales uh, from you know airport and airline customers before we'd even built the product. So I was thinking, this is just great, you know, <laughs> this is a success story that's going to ramp up really quickly. Um, then COVID hit, and all the airline market just <laughs> oh went dear, hiding. oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> there weren't too many people flying at that stage, were there? No. Well, certainly nobody in New Zealand was flying. Well, not outside of New Zealand at least. Um, but also the airlines were laying off all their staff. Airports were doing the same. Mm. Um, and and certainly weren't looking at investing any money or time into carbon offset programs or anything that's not, you know, critical to keeping the wheels on. Right. So, so when we look at carbon click – what you you know, what most people probably would would think of in relation to you is going online to buy an airline ticket, and then having having an option that comes up on the screen for you to off, you know, do a, an offset of that of that flight, um, in terms of in terms of carbon credits. So, yeah, that uh, that would have been a pretty tough period, and that was pretty much like most of your business at that point was the flight. Off, offsetting. That was the whole business. That was, yeah, that was yeah, the, that whole was thing. the okay. intention is so. tackle the airline market first and then, yeah. you know, within the next few years, expand out into the wider e-commerce sector mm. um, and then, you know, longer-term compliance markets and things like that. But um, it, it certainly turned our um, it turned our opportunities upside down. Mm. So, so you talked about selling before you actually had, had a product. So... <laughs> You know, what did that look like in terms of building up a team and putting the software and, and you know, all the bits and pieces together so that you could, you know, have something to, to serve your, uh, I guess your, your clients are sort of, they partner with you, but it ends up being their customers that are, that are the ones that are, um, you know, ultimately, you know, buying through you. Is that how it works? Yeah, that's right. So B2B2C, so we're providing... Um, or curating carbon offset programs mm. for companies to offer their customers. Mm. Mm. And we're just the tech behind the scenes uh, that that makes it all happen for them. But we also have all the humans that do all the sense checking, make sure they're not going to uh, go out there and do silly things like get big greenwashing and, and get accused of that. So we're, we're pretty responsible about making sure that we're working with the right businesses, that it's the right time for them to be offsetting and the way that they do it doesn't stop them from leading by decarbonising first or at least doing everything that they can to decarbonise first because that's really important. We don't have enough offsets in the world to just offset alone and offset our, our way out of this problem. It has to be a... Offsets are a really quick way of fighting climate change now if... We're also working on the other end of, you know, turning the tap off on the bath as well as letting the plug out. We've got to turn those taps off as well. Otherwise, we just can't keep up with with the amount of damage that we're doing. Right. And so what were the, you know, the clients that you were able to get on board initially and, and how's that evolved? So, you know, flipping from <laughs> intending on, on working directly with the airlines first, we, uh, we flipped into or pivoted into... Um, the wider e-commerce space. So we started with Shopify and then built out into WooCommerce, Magento, online e-commerce platforms where you'll see, you know, probably 75% of the world's e-commerce is transacted through these um, these platforms. 
so that's oh sorry, seventy five percent of the world's non Amazon yeah, yeah. <laughs> e commerce. <laughs> I should qualify that. And so that was great. Like we got over a thousand clients uh, on board pretty quickly, putting the green button on their cart and seeing the carbon offsetting being clicked by their consumers and and getting some data around that so that we could start to understand what types of products people associate with carbon and and what types of companies people associate with that and and geographically where people were more more active in carbon offsetting and so on. So that sort of helped, even though it was lots of small businesses that gave us really good data that we could work with to um, to target the bigger companies and the enterprises is really where we play best. Oh, that's that's quite fascinating. And so, what's your mix sort of look like today? Airlines versus other sorts of you know what is what a sort of mix of entities the, that you you work with? Travel sector is a big part of our core market. So mm. that's airlines, hotels, and you know booking platforms that that are in that tourism space. That's probably a third of third of our business. Um, a third of our business would be um, in the wider e-commerce space, particularly fashion, health, and beauty. Mm. And then a third is a mix of direct offsetting, so businesses that actually want to tap into our platform to buy carbon, to go carbon neutral, um, yep. and understand their carbon footprint. That's that's a part of it. But also an increasing part of that middle chunk is the event space. So, you know, we just offset FIFA last year. That's a B2B side of things, but we've got, you know, a really big events customer coming on board shortly that's uh, one of the biggest events in the world where their fans are aware that there's a carbon footprint attending and want to do something about it, still want to attend though. Mm. Um, so this way they can offset their impact um, in a meaningful way and transparent way um, and still attend that event. And in, I mean, in terms of making it meaningful and, and transparent, um, how does technology help? What you know, what does that what does that what does that look like? And you know, what's the role of technology and people and you know and process for you to actually um, you know deliver the, that? Yeah, so we use. I mean, the whole platform is a bit like zero. It's it's kind of a financial and um, and. Uh, financial and inventory management system with a full audit trail and that goes all the way to the carbon offset registries which is where carbon offset projects are uh, listed um, so you can see that carbon click has bought that uh, that module of carbon or a ton of carbon and then there's an independent registry as well which which we run which is a transparent ledger it's anonymized so you can see every transaction against each ton of carbon so you can see where your two dollars has gone transparently instantly mm -hmm. and that it's been accounted for at the registry whether it's united nations or new zealand emissions trading scheme registry wherever that is you can trace your 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 money to see that it's reached the project but more so you can actually learn about the project because we provide all the data our audit reports so that you can see that these are all the things that we've checked for that we like about this project yep and that's really important in the carbon side of things because you've got plenty of projects out there which are questionable as far as their additionality, their permanence, um, 
if we support this project, does it really have a big impact in sucking carbon out of the atmosphere or changing how much carbon is in the atmosphere? And if the answer is no, we won't support it. Um, and so a third of all the projects that we assess, actually we say, no, this is really bad. Um, a third of the projects that we assess, we say it's questionable. We can't prove it or disprove it. But a third of them are really good, really meaningful, carry lots of co-benefits, biodiversity enhancements and things like that. And that helps all sorts of other uh, areas of the world. Like, you know, if you have good native forestry leading up to streams and things, it prevents silt runoff into the streams and out to sea and doesn't choke all the seagrass. And then that means all the snapper come into spawn and I can go fishing and Ooh. all of those kind of cool <laughs> things. But but really, that's what we're trying to do is just restore our planet. And the the carbon side of the equation is a big part of that. That's great. And how easy is it for businesses who are, you know, wanting to get their head around where, where they're at, you know, how much of a problem they are and looking at addressing it through carbon offsets? So the basics are really simple. Like there are plenty of free calculators out there that they can go on, punch in their details, how much en energy am I consuming and, and those sort of things. And, and they can tell from their provider whether that's carbon neutral energy or whether it's normal energy on the New Zealand grid. Um, and there are factors for all of these things which will give you a pretty good ballpark as to what your impact is. It doesn't factor in things like, you know, peak hour, when the gas turbines are running, you're using dirtier energy and, and that sort of thing. You, most EV owners start to learn about this because they buy an EV because they generally want to have a better impact on the planet, so they're generally charging at night and that sort of thing. But for the everyday business, you can get probably 75% of the way to a carbon footprint with a really basic calculator tool. Mm, and, and that gives you a really good idea as to where you can focus on decarbonizing. And then you can take the next step later and, you know, work your way up to full um, carbon audits, ISO audits, and so on. Um, if you really want to get deep into the calculations, but most businesses need to start somewhere. And it's perfectly okay to start with the basics and just look at where your biggest uh, carbon savings could be first. Yep. And then and then keep refining and doing better from there, right? So if someone's got you know they've gone through that that process, I mean, are you able to are you able to work with sort of you know what sort of size and scale of, of businesses do you work with who are who are looking looking at that just straight on that pure sort of business to business type yeah, relationship? Abs absolutely. So we'll work with on a direct and focused level. We'll work with the biggest enterprises in town. But at a platform level, you know, we've got online free calculator tools and so on that SMEs can log into, have a play with, buy carbon at the end of it if they want to, and know that it's from a really reputable basket of carbon. And it's automated so that you're buying carbon locally to you or a basket that's local to where you're logging in from. So, you know, Kiwis are quite patriotic. They love supporting native reforestation projects in New Zealand and so on, and that's what we use with customers like AA Smart Fuels. Uh, Americans are the same in the US, they love supporting projects there, but we've found some regions like the UK, they're happy to support the Amazon and, and so on. So mm, mm. we've got a basket for every country basically, and going online to buy carbon through our portal, you'll, you'll get the right basket that's going to hopefully be most meaningful to you without having to have high margins or any fees for interacting with a human. But 
when we get to the bigger end of town, they always want a curated basket that's carefully selected directly for them, but they're talking million-dollar kind of offset volumes. I guess that there's an aspect in your business where, and it's probably reasonably you know, common, I, I suppose, where trends change. And so, you know, I would think businesses you know, generally would be more interested in, in how, you know, how they can, they can do the right thing uh, from an environmental aspect. But you know, probably carbon offsetting, some people are, you know, very keen, but it maybe isn't, you know, trendy in every direction. So how have you kind of dealt with, with that, whether carbon offsetting is the right, you know, the right, right thing to do? Has that been a, much, of a, much of a challenge? Yeah, it has been because there's, you know, <laughs> there are good companies that are decarbonising first mm. and they and there are good offsets that are highly meaningful. And those companies that are decarbonising first and measuring the carbon really accurately, generally they're happy to support those high-quality projects as well and that's a really meaningful loop. But then you've got bad companies that are offsetting with good offsets that's a real uh, conundrum because they're not necessarily decarbonising, so therefore it can be classed as greenwashing. So that's, you know, that's the cases where it's really sad that we have to say no, but we often can be that tail that wags the dog and say, hey, look, but come and see us in six months. Here's some pointers. You need to sort out your decarbonisation plan first and take some tangible steps first. Otherwise... The only reason that we're saying no is to protect your name and ours from being dragged over the coals for greenwashing by, you know, offsetting your problem instead of tackling the the main cause of your emissions. Mm, so yeah. there's there's that. There's also um, good companies that choose poor quality offsets, and those are really meaningless. So they're claiming net zero or climate friendly or carbon neutral, but the offsets that they're using to claim it with are not actually making a tangible difference to the uh, to the atmosphere. So there's there's those companies that are you know trying to do good, but they're just buying poor quality offsets, and that's really unfortunate. But they often get hauled over the coals for that as well, um, and and brought out in the media for greenwashing. Um, and then you've got the the um, so so you've got good companies buying good offsets, bad companies buying good offsets, yep. and you've got uh, good companies buying bad offsets. Um, so there's only really one of those quadrants, good companies, good offsets, that really um, is is where we want to play. Um, and we have to support, you know, the media, those that are getting hauled over the coals for it, but it doesn't do a lot of favours for carbon offsetting as an industry. Right. Yeah, and that's where I'm a big advocate for regulation and um, and increasing minimum standards. So I'm pretty vocal in that. When we have, you know, COP27 last year, COP26 before that, that's yep. the United Nations event yep. on trying to advocate for those higher minimum standards to weed out at least the bad offsetting. Mm, mm. Um, and then and then it's a case of you know, consumer laws like Europe's just passed some consumer laws recently on um, vague green claims. Uh, so companies won't be able to, for example, claim this is a carbon neutral T-shirt um, if they've used poisonous dyes and poor quality 
um, other environmental damaging mm. uh, things mm. are involved in that process. So yep. that's that's going to start to weed out the bad companies as well over time. That's good. That sounds yeah. That's very very helpful. Um, and so you know. What's next? You you've got uh, Series A sort of you know funding round. Are there any details that you can you know you can share about that at this at this point in times in terms of what you're looking to raise? Yeah, and so valuations so and so, so on? it's just the starting point of that process. Mm, so mm. the first thing is to secure our lead investors. Mm. Um, so to make sure lead and co-lead probably um, we've got a trade uh, a, a um, customer of ours that's that's probably going to be one of those co-leads um, and finding another hero investor to take that other co-lead position is, is the first job and because that sets the terms and then everybody else is really uh, investing on those terms. So we've got to secure what the valuations are and things like that but we're, um, the, the plan is uh, to raise 10 mil US on a 30 mil pre-money yep. and that's, that's based on you know, comparative analysis with others in the same sort of position, same sort of revenues and all that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, it's an unusual market at the moment. Yeah, it is. Um, so we may need to rethink our strategy if we get, you know, four weeks in and, and um, investors are saying, hey, we're worth more or less. Um, we're going to have to just adjust as we go. So a month in, we'll, we'll really know where it's sitting. Yeah, I guess you know, anyone raising funds at the moment sort of goes in with their, with their eyes, you know, pretty wide open. But, yeah. uh, but you don't. Know, you don't really know how it plays out until uh, until you get in there, do you? So, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh well, I, I hope it uh, hope it goes really, really well. And in terms of sort of the you know the longer, longer term, you know, you know where do you imagine uh, carb, carbon click sort of you know might be, and you know five years or so out? Yeah. So I mean, the next stage is to get into the compliance market, which would probably be a post Series B um, phase. But but we're this is part of the advantage of working with the large enterprises is they're going to be the first captured by legislation uh, that require them to meet uh, certain thresholds. So that's that's kind of after in another two years, and then beyond that in that in that five year journey, it'll be a case of bedding down um, those that um, that ramp up of green button on the on e commerce as well as um, uh, customers buying carbon to meet those compliance requirements uh, using our using our platform and we'll you know build a lot of partnerships around this as well um, we're not we're not doing this alone but the longer longer term game by about 2030 which is kind of you know now seven years out that's we we think we'll be at a kind of two percent of the world's um, voluntary carbon market plus, I'm not sure what percent of the compliance market, but the voluntary market alone's fifty billion dollar um, market in 2030. So it's, you know, that'll be for this New Zealand company to be doing a billion dollars a year in in carbon revenue. Um, that's a, a pretty big uh, ambition, but we think it's entirely um, plausible. It's we're at 0.2 percent of the global carbon market at the moment is is our revenue share of that. Yeah, and um, all we need to do is 10x where we're at now as a market market share percentage. Make it sound easy. So well, it's, it should be. It should That's be. Good. It should That's be relatively good. straightforward. Excellent, <laughs> excellent. 
Oh, that's uh, that's really good. Thank you, uh, thank you, Dave, for for joining the show, and um, great to learn about Carbon Click, gain some insights uh, from your learnings along the way. For folks that may be interested in getting in touch or in and learning a bit more, where should where should they head to? Yeah, you can check out carbonclick.com. Um, connect with me if you want on LinkedIn, or um, you can access me via our website as well. Yeah, that's great. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, thanks very much for joining us, Dave Rouse. And uh, thanks to our show partners, uh, Vodafone, Spark, uh, Two Degrees, HP and Gorilla Technology. All right. Catch you on the next episode. See you. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.